How much of your own food do you grow? And do you want it to be more? Welcome to Thrive in the Future podcast. Positive solutions to help you thrive, homestead, garden, and designing your intentional life. The Patreon is now live, so join us on our Patreon. It's at patreon.com slash thrive in the future. So what you get for $5 a month, early episodes, lots of extras, including outtakes. You get an ebook, Are You a Trader or Are You a Gambler? Free copies of ebooks as they become available. And Thriving Garden Spreadsheet, which includes a breakdown of how much to plant to live off your garden as a primary food source. It tracks what you plant, your inputs, your food costs that you will offset by growing your own food. It's all customizable. It's included free with your Patreon subscription. That's at patreon.com slash thrive in the future. Welcome back to Thrive in the Future. How much of your own food do you grow? And do you want it to be more? So it's that time of year when you see articles, podcasts, and posts on social media that say, grow all of your own food. Or maybe they don't go that far and it's grow most of your own food. Well, in this episode, we're going to concentrate on grow more of your own food. We're going to try and be a little bit more realistic. Let's talk a little bit about self-sufficiency versus resilience. I'm going to borrow and butcher Jack Spirko's definition. So self-sufficiency is basically how much are you prepped? This is measured in time. So I have this much stored food. If an SHTF situation comes, I could fall back on my food sources. The thing is that SHTF situation may be you losing your job or whatever else. So a lot of people I know have a month of stored food. Some people I know have three months of stored food. And I know a few people who have over a year of stored food. Now, if you're living only on that, you may be eating a lot of beans and rice. I hope you have practiced how to cook with beans and rice. And then there's resilience. And this is what systems do you have in place to keep providing for yourself? A garden is a great example of that. So I'm going to grow my own food and it's going to supplement some of my preps. And same thing about water. If I store water or I rain capture, if I store water, then I have X amount of time that I have stored water. If I have a well, then I have then I am supplementing my water. Perhaps it uh, has this much capacity. There's a possibility that if, depending on my well, my well pump or whatever else and what it does in different seasons, then I may or may not have 100% resilience there. But you get the idea. There's self-sufficiency, how much am I prepped, and then how resilient am I. A garden goes towards both of those. So how much garden do I need and how much do I need to plant to be resilient. Now, instead of actually going down to the numbers, let's back up and look at the mindset. Let's look at the processes. So it always goes back to what do you like to eat? Most people don't actually eat that many vegetables. There's a lot of folks that don't know how to cook with vegetables. And of course, if you've got kids, then sometimes the kids don't eat all that much vegetables either. So let's take these one at a time. So you have staple crops. These are the ones that are very high in calories and they store well. So sweet potatoes, regular potatoes, onions, garlic, things like that. You have your spinaches, your kale, your greens, 
they don't necessarily store as well, but they're going to give you the high nutrient benefit. And then you have the other crops that make a difference. Your peppers, your cucumbers, the things you couldn't imagine living without, but they're not staple crops. So once you figure out what you like to eat, then you will have to decide and determine what can I store. So lettuce and greens and those nutrient crops are not storable over the wintertime unless you freeze them. And lettuce doesn't freeze very well. If you harvest kale or you forage nettles, for example, you could take those and you can steam them. And then after you drain them, form them into little balls and freeze them, flash freeze them. And those are storable. And you, I have a friend who lives off his forage nettles for the entire year, and that's his primary green. Xavier Hawk has also said that that is his family's primary green. They harvest and forage nettles in the springtime, and then they freeze them for the rest of the year. If you're going to grow most of your own potatoes, or more of your own potatoes to eat, then you need to have a way to store them. Either to store them in a root cellar, or to store them in buckets of sand in a cool, dry, dark place, or things like that. And one of the things to keep in mind also, the next step is to figure out what can I do so that I don't have too much abundance and they all go rotten. Take potatoes for instance. Most of us that live below say Iowa or Ohio can squeeze two potato crops into a season. Or you could secession plant in two different beds and then start one crop early, start one crop later, and then spread out your potato harvest so that it's not all at one time. So you don't want to plant X number of beds in March, like I'm doing, and then try and store those for the rest of the year because that just won't work. It's better to secession plant and start another bed later and then have them overlap into the fall. You also have root vegetables such as carrots, beets, where you can leave them in the ground after the frost. And to some extent, you could store them in the ground if you're in the right environment. If it gets cold in the wintertime, you could store those in the ground and then you wouldn't need a root cellar. But if it's freezing and warming, freezing, warming, that won't work. For potatoes, you could also parboil them and then freeze them or flash freeze them for the wintertime as well. So it's pretty much like hash browns that you pull out of the freezer that you bought from Orida from Walmart or the store. The next question is, do you know how to cook with these vegetables? This is the biggest problem, actually. Storing is an issue, but learning how to cook with the vegetables is a bigger issue. Most people don't know how to cook greens. They don't know how to cook mustard greens, for example. And most people don't like them. So the dirty little secret around here is that in northeast Kansas here, there's a really good response in donating to the food bank. The local restaurants donate their bread to the food bank. The local organic farms donate a lot of produce to the food bank. The dirty little secret is the poor people that go to the food bank don't take that bread and don't take those vegetables, and then it gets thrown away or given to farmers. I have a farmer friend who used to get two barrels, big, huge 50-gallon barrels a week from the food bank of discarded food, mostly with bread and 
vegetables that were not taken by the folks. So why don't they take them? Now, I'm not going to generalize at all, but most folks that go to the food bank don't know how to cook vegetables. They don't have a taste for vegetables, and I'm not looking down on anybody because I used to be like this. I grew up very poor. We had fresh vegetables only a few times a year when they were from the garden or somebody's garden. We didn't have a garden at that point. The rest of the time, we were eating canned fruits and vegetables. We only had fresh fruits two or three times a year. We would have strawberries once or twice a year. We would have peaches once or twice a year. And then we would have an orange or two a couple of times a year. And because we ate canned fruits and vegetables all the time, the fresh fruits and vegetables were too strong. They were weird textures. I didn't like oranges at all because they were too sweet. Um, Peaches tasted very musky because I was used to the canned peaches that were in heavy syrup from the can. So I understand because I've been there. So those folks don't know how to cook kale. And let's be honest, corporate food and processed food puts together addictive properties with salt, sweet, and fat all together in a food. It causes food addiction. It makes you come back for more, as well as MSG and things like that. So regular stuff sometimes tastes, especially vegetables, tastes too bland. So it's hard to get over that hump. The way to do that is to learn how to cook and even to take it to the next step and say, okay, I like going out to the restaurant and I like this food at the restaurant and then experiment and learn how to cook that at home. There's enough copycat recipes on the internet on how to cook like Chick-fil-A, how to cook like McDonald's, things like that. Example, so I used to go to a Cajun restaurant and I really like this firecracker chicken and shrimp. Pretty soon I figured out that really I could make this at home with slightly higher end boneless chicken nuggets, apricot preserves, and hot sauce mixed in to a sauce and then put over rice and it was essentially the same thing. Add a little bit of onion and then boom, I have a dish that would have cost me 10 to $15 at the restaurant. And don't forget perennials. Grow chestnuts, grow hazelnuts. They're not like peanuts or legumes the chestnuts and the hazelnuts have natural oils in them natural fats they have natural carbs at one point it was said that chestnut could be tree bread and if you dry it then you can grind it up into flour akiva silver up at twisted tree farm up in upstate new york is taking chestnuts and pressing them into cooking oil And don't forget to forage. We already talked about nettles. And before we've talked, we've had a couple of episodes here recently on foraging. There's henbit. There's other things you could go around and augment a salad with wild arugula, with um, plantain, with lamb's quarters. So what are my favorite things to grow? I like to grow sweet potatoes. I grow a lot of blue scotch kale. This is the gnarly looking kale, but it's not the dinosaur kale like Lacinto kale. I grow 
my favorite lettuce is black seeded Simpson lettuce. This is the cut and come again lettuce. It doesn't form a head. It comes up. It's the real delicate leafy lettuce like the butter bliss lettuce at the store. So this comes up. You succession plant it every week in different beds. It'll come up. It gets to the point where you can cut it every week and get about a gallon of lettuce, a gallon bag, freezer bag of lettuce and run that all the way through the season. I put that also in the greenhouse and I can get that all the way up to Christmas and sometimes longer than that in the greenhouse. I like Amish paste and mortgage lifter tomatoes and then I take those and I roast them along with onions and then put them into the Nutribullet, grind them up, put them and can them and I usually put away 25 to 50 pint jars of tomato sauce for the winter time. I also like cow peas. These are the black eyed peas. They are good at bringing nitrogen to the soil and then I also can harvest them as dry beans at the end of the season. And one of my favorite things to grow is milpa. So I talked about this a little bit on the episode with Grant Payne. I usually buy it from Green Cover Seed and it has 40 different seeds in it. It has squash, cucumbers, watermelon, pumpkins, gourds, beets, chard, radishes, turnips, arugula. It has some low grazing corn, which is basically like popcorn. It has okra, and it has a bunch of perennial flowers mixed in there, as well as mankin buckwheat. So what this does is you plant it, and it gives you different yields and different crops throughout the season. So if you plant it early, it's going to be more greens. If you plant it later, it's going to be more squash taking over. And you can get a lot of different things in there. It seems to grow better for me and evade the squash bugs because the squash goes in between the greens and in between the buckwheat and that covers it and keeps the squash bugs off it to some extent. And then it usually ends the season with dry beans and then I can harvest the dry beans. There's enough thatch and everything else where I can slash it or just push it down. And then I'll have a cover and a mulch for the wintertime. So green cover seed is out of this, but you can make your own. So how do you make your own? I can still get parts of these from green cover seed. And this is what I'm doing for the spring. I bought buckwheat from them. I have cow peas that I have left over from last year. I went over to the Mexican Carniceria, which is the Mexican grocery store, and I bought pinto beans, which are bush beans, in bulk, and this was ridiculously low. Over at that store, they're less likely to be treated like they would at the regular grocery store, and they can be used as seeds. They're basically dry beans. I added in some grazing corn or some popcorn. You want to make sure that you have something that is not a tall corn, that and then intersperse it. You don't want a lot of corn in there. You want a lot of greens and lower things and squash and then have corn poking up in there, say like 10 of them for a 10 by 10 bed. They don't have a lot of squash. So what I did was got some squash either from the store or I went down and got some land raised squash from the hardware store. Mix that in just a little bit. So I mix all that together. It has buckwheat, it has red ripper cow peas, it has pinto beans, it has squash and melons. And then I add in those previous years. I went over to a seed swap 
in Douglas County, which is in northeast Kansas, and got some other things to fill it in. I added in some daikon radish. I just mix all that stuff together, broadcast it out over a bed, cover it lightly with wood chips, and then see what comes up. And like I said, if it's planted early, then the greens are more likely to come up first, the buckwheat and everything else. And then if it's planted later, then the squash will take hold. I've had two different things. I'll include an article to this in the show notes, and you can go and look at that, including pictures and some of the results. One of the things I like about it is that then I have dry beans at the end of the season. I take those, harvest those, and put them in quart jars. So take all these things into account in your garden planning, and good luck on this season. New from Thrive in the Future, I've done the work so you don't have to. If you're wondering how much can I grow and you also want to track what you're growing, I have a new spreadsheet. It's called the Thriving Garden Spreadsheet. And it has multiple tabs. One of the tabs is how much can I grow. It has all of the plants listed. It has general what spacing you need, what spacing you need between the rows. And then it has how much overall feet do you need per person. Say if you want to grow potatoes and you want to have that as a primary crop and have it as a significant part of your stored food, then it has in there how much plants you need per person and how much space you need per person. Now, I'm very conservative on this. Some of the places that say grow all of your own food say you need 50 feet of bed and 75 pounds of potatoes for per person. Well, maybe that's okay in a complete SHTF situation, but this is balanced with reality. So say you need 10 potato plants per person. How much feet do you need for that? And it has a calculator in there where you put your number of people in and it'll calculate how many seeds, how many plants, and how much feet you need total for a garden for your for your family. Like you put two people in there, you got a husband and wife, and it'll tell you how much you need. It's balanced. I have the source where the numbers come from and you can adjust it and you can make it like you want. It also has other tabs where you can track what you've planted per the year. It tracks when your first and last frost date was, and then it tracks it per previous years. So I can go back and I can look just at the bottom of my spreadsheet that in 2020 and 2021, I had a late frost. My normal frost is April 20th, and I had a late frost both those years where the frost was into May, and it damaged my potatoes. It damaged my tomatoes because anything less than 40 degrees usually blasts tomatoes. It doesn't even have to get down to freezing. It blasted the tomatoes and they wilt up and they don't thrive after that. It includes that where you can track what you plant. It can tra- You can c- track your overall outcome. You can track where your seed came from and did you buy this at the nursery and then plant it? Did you grow it from yourself and, and transplant it, whatever else. It also has tabs for what kind of input you have and what kind of harvest you have, and then it can tie that to what kind of food costs have you seen, and how do you offset that. Say you grew 25 pounds of tomatoes. Heirloom tomatoes at the store cost $3.49 a pound. So you could take that and say, I saved this much money by growing my own food this year, at least for tomatoes. And that's really important because you have the myth of the $50 tomato that you put in so much inputs that by the time you're done with that tomato plant, you you spent $50 to get one tomato. This you can actually see your results that I grew 25 pounds of tomatoes. They're $349 a pound. 
then you start seeing a real increase in what kind of ROI or return on investment did I have on my garden. This is available with a link in the show notes. It's also available at thrivinggardenplanner.com. And if you use the coupon code thriving, then you get $5 off. Also, if you join our Patreon at patreon.com slash thriving the future, then this is included free with your $5 a month Patreon membership. Check it out. Thank you for listening to Thriving the Future podcast. Like us and follow us on your favorite podcast app. And leave us a five-star review on Apple iTunes. That helps drive the algorithm and pushes Thriving the Future up in the search results. Thank you. Next time on Thriving the Future podcast. In the upcoming weeks for Thriving the Future podcast, these are the topics we're going to be talking about. Have an interview lined up with Cyprian, so we're at the three-year mark of the lockdown and all those bare shelves. And back then, I had friends who were preppers, who were prepped just fine. They had years of food in some cases. They had still had a job. They had enough money to make it if they did lose their job, but they weren't prepared mentally. They weren't prepared in their heart. So that's coming up on Thriving the Future podcast.